Welcome to another episode of the Autism Podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to say that we've got Jenny Chuton on the line joining us today. Hello, Jenny. Hi. Thanks for coming on uh, the podcast. Uh, so, Jenny, we're going to be talking today about being a sibling and, and a care, carer at the same time for your autistic brother. But before we jump into to that, just want to say hello also to James Gordon, our amazing co-host. How are you doing, James? Hi there. Hi, Jenny. Hi. All right. Yeah, so um, very, very important area. Um, you know, uh, siblings of autistic people, um, but not just siblings, carers also, you know, and what that is like, what kind of impact that has perhaps on carers' mental health, what carers need to be thinking about, but also from, from that sibling uh, perspective as well. So there's there's all sorts of dynamics, I imagine. Um, and Jenny, you've got obviously a lot of lived experience of this. Um, <laughs> so that's why we've got you on the podcast. So yeah, thank, thanks again for joining. Yeah, well, I'd just like to give a little bit of background um set the scene so I am 59 my brother is six years older than me he's called Nigel I have another brother who's four years older than me so Nigel was uh, born obviously in the 1950s uh, in after about 18 months he developed seizures um, there were issues right from the early days and of course back then there was no understanding of autism so my parents were told he was backward and he would be playing in sand for the rest of his life. And dis but despite all that, my parents were amazing. Um, given the level of sort of medical knowledge at the time, they managed to find schools for him. So he was in mainstream schools right the way through. He managed to keep a job for nearly 30 years at Hammersmith Hospital. He ran two London marathons. So, you know, there was some lovely achievements in his life. Amazing. I mean, two London marathons, that is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah. He used to be very good at running, but now he needs a walker. You know, he can't walk. He can't stand unaided. He needs a walker. So things have changed a lot since those days back in the 1990s. And I, I live with him now. How long has he needed a, a walker for, Jenny? Since December 2020, when he came out of hospital. And actually, that's that time, he was in hospital for three months, right, end of August through to December 2020. And this actually was quite a turning point for me. I had one perspective before that time, and then my perspective changed very much during and after that time. Wow. Okay. Uh, before perhaps we get into you know what yeah. what exactly happened. Uh, so you said that he had he he had seizures early on in his life, right? Yes. Um, so what what happened there? Did the, did they did the seizures continue throughout his life? You know, or did the pattern change? Um, did you get any support on that front? They didn't. I think the view was that oh he might grow out of these seizures, and of course some children do, um, but he didn't. He, I, I don't know the, the exact age he started the medication, but I think pretty much he's been taking similar, the, um, t uh, was it carbamazepine and epinutin? He's been taking those pretty much all his life. Those medicines are pretty standard epilepsy medicines and they were developed in the 60s. They came out then, so that's about right. 
that he would have been taking it for most of his life. Okay. Um, they, they've stayed around ever since. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, his personality, his interests and uh, perhaps some of the things that through his life have, have worked well for him and given him, you know, happiness? I mean, on the, I suppose what was very challenging for him, and I think that has shaped his, his mental health a lot, I think, over the years, is that he, this turn backward was really damaging. You know, and he always felt he had to work so much harder than anyone else just to keep up. And that created huge stress for him. Mm. And he still can uh, be in that place. This can lead to, you know, become very obsessive um, and he's exhausted, but he keeps pushing himself. And yes, that the, there is a plus side to that. It got him running and he got him training. He got him running the London Marathon. But the downside is that he could make himself ill by pushing himself when his body was absolutely exhausted. Um, he would just push himself too far. Yet again, it's just a, such an example of how perhaps fragrantly clinicians use certain terms or come to certain judgments. But then the lasting, you know, life changing impact. Yeah. A, a word can have you know yeah. you know that one yeah. of these clinicians just labeling him as backward using that word and that that's clearly stuck with him and, and defined yeah. him in some way you know yeah. in, in in pushing back against that that label and uh, yeah and I suppose also at times is believing that to be true or well that's the trouble that's mm. the trouble he has believed it to be true mm. so he self-stigmatized himself yes mm. Yes, and that's very um, yeah. I've, I mean, we all find that that's 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 hard. It's upsetting. So yes, he finds that he finds it very hard to receive a compliment. But I I see him now. So that that was sort of something that shaped him back then. Now I see him as a very wise, kind soul. You know, and he's very good at chess. He loves reading history. He's very good with dates. The Roman Empire, you know, <laughs> you, you know, and at the same time, he is his own worst enemy. So um, his mental health is very much up and down. Is that because he's been struggling with the self-stigma on and off? Good question. Um, I think some of it's to do with that. Yes. Some of it's to do with the struggles he's had. I'm sure some of it's the side effects of the medications he's been taking. So I think there are many, many factors there. Does he, just to get, get the facts straight, he is yeah, now, yeah. he is now, uh, he does now have a diagnosis of autism. Is that right? He, he had a diagnosis in 2012. Yes. At the age of 56. 56, correct. Right. What led to that diagnosis? What, what, what perhaps prevented the diagnosis from coming earlier? You know, what, what, what triggered the diagnosis? Tell us well, a little bit about that. Yeah, good question. As late as 2009, because I was, I was looking through some old correspondence, his GP was still um, saying that he had a mild learning disability, question mark, paranoid disorder, right? This was 2009. So as late as that, they were still trying to put him in a box where he didn't fit. So he had many seizures through those years, and presumably at that time, autism was a well understood condition. 
if that's the right term. But even he saw psychologists, psychiatrists, hospital doctors, GPs, none of them picked up on it, which I think was quite an achievement. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think they think? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that is unbelievable. You know, I mean, in a way, it's unbelievable. In other other ways, you know, we've heard this many times, you know, that, you know, missed missed opportunities, late diagnosis and so forth. But why do you think, why do you think it was was missed? You know, why do you think these uh, professionals uh, repeatedly missed it? Yeah, he could run, he could run rings around a professional. I saw him do that. And of course, they were only seeing him for an hour conversation, weren't they? They weren't actually living with him. So I came back to London in 1998. And I realised, because up at that time, my parents really kind of kept it all quiet. It was very much a taboo. It wasn't something you talked about and it was all kept very much within the family. But I could see that my father was getting frail. My mother wasn't well because my mother started to show signs of dementia at the age of in, when was it, 2004. So I recruited a carer for her in 2010. And this carer walked in and one of the first things she noticed was Nigel. And she said, has he been diagnosed as autistic? So was that... Was that the first time yes. anybody had? Yes. And she's still with the family. She's like an extended family. She's mm. like my sister. And I'm so, so grateful to her. So then that started the job. I There was nobody within this borough um, who could who was able to make a diagnosis. Borough of? Of Ealing. Mm-hmm. I, would, I mean, I'd hope that things had changed by now. So fortunately, I kept pushing and consultant from T- Twickenham came. And that's when we got the diagnosis. So it was when the uh, the the first sort of mention of it came, uh, you know, perhaps he's autistic. Was that a surprise to you? What, what, what no, was your... no, because the carer's uh, suggestion, actually, it was like dropping a seed on fertile ground. It just like made so much sense to me because I'd been reading. I think it's called The Horse Boy. Do you know that book? Yeah, oh, I know that. Oh, it was a wonderful, wonderful book. And I'd been reading that book. And there were some similarities in the boy's behaviour and my brother's behaviour. And this was really eye-opening for me. So when the carer came and and made that suggestion, it's like, yeah, absolutely. Do you think your your parents sort of on some level knew it, you know, earlier in their lives or and and just didn't want to talk about it or acknowledge it. Do you think on some level they they were aware that he he may have been autistic and just I don't know because it was never mentioned. That word was never never mentioned. My 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 father knew something wasn't right. He tried all he could. He was a GP. So he worked with all the speech therapists, all the professionals he could possibly work with to help clarify, but nobody could. Unfortunately, that was kind of a, a sign of the times that, and things have really taken a long time to, uh, you know, knowledge and about autism. Even, you know, I'm 47. So even when I was growing up, it just wasn't a word that was mentioned. And um, I think it was just a societal thing that society wasn't educated about autism in those days. Um, thank goodness that he did get the diagnosis in the end because um, some people sort of never get a diagnosis unfortunately so at least he did get one yeah yeah <laughs> yeah thanks James so Jenny you said that you know there was a turning point that happened in 2020 uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that okay as a child 
my brother was the centre of attention. I think this is quite a, a common um, circumstance. I think it was just the sort of the, the cultural family conditioning was that his needs came first. So I, I kind of grew up with that sense that his needs came first, but also that uh, my needs didn't come first generally. And it was... And it's incredible to say, but it's only relatively recently did I really understand that. It had become a blind, a blind area for me, if you like, but only, only relatively recently. And that was when my brother was in hospital. That was the turning point that I mentioned. Did I realise, oh, my God. Because one example of that, my mother had, had died um, in April, tw- April 2019, And I remember just thinking about my brother, how to care for him. I didn't think about myself at all. And it was only a friend that said to me, what about you? What are you going to do now? (laughs) It's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, what am I going to do now? Yeah. So that was just an extreme example. I had been looking after my mother. Uh, She'd had 24-hour care. And I'd wanted to care for her and my brother in the the house. So it, it had been a very intense few years of care. So just to just understand, yeah. so, you, so you're saying that only relatively recently have you perhaps realised the extent to which your needs were secondary when you were a child, when you were younger, and, yeah. and you're now beginning to explore your, how, I suppose your own kind of mental health a little bit more and your own needs in relation to the dynamics of being a carer for your autistic brother. Is, is that right? Absolutely. So before that time... For that turning point, I saw myself as my brother's primary carer. That's how I saw myself. And then it just dawned on me that this just was not healthy, a healthy perspective. I did not want to be his primary carer. I wanted to be his sister. And I wanted to live the life that I was meant to be living. So it was a massive reappraisal of what my role in this on this planet is right now. Wow, that's, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's quite something, isn't it? Really, that kind, you know, this kind of exploration you're going on now, because it must have been it must have been very difficult for you as a child, you know, having your needs not always put first, and you know, observing what was going on with your brother um, and trying to support him in your own way, and thinking about him, you know, always predominantly first. Um, Well, I know other people do. I mean, I think this is the lovely thing about being in contact with the London Autism Group is that I've heard other experiences, some harrowing experiences. And it's like, well, this is what this is what we do as siblings, you know. Mm. Um, Mm. So I know it's not unusual. It's not unusual. No, but that's that's not to say we should be minimizing, you know, the the individual sort of impact that it would have had upon you Jenny you know and mm. uh, what, what how things must be for you uh, but it's good that you can access support and relate to others for sure and uh, connect with others it's been fabulous well, I mean to be able to talk about the past like that is a wonderful thing in itself I, over my life there was uh, times of depression not that long ago I was feeling very anxious and I did realize that this was um and I'm sort of, it wasn't just a, a mild anxiety. It was quite a deep, deep level of anxiety. Um, but I've done some mindset work, which has helped hugely. So I suppose I've, the last few months, actually, I've 
had the luxury to spend time on myself, on my mental health and my physical health. You think, I mean, please tell me if I'm over overextending or reaching too far, but do you think to some extent or in some way you've experienced psychological trauma or PTSD? I have with regard to the um, seizures. Yes, I have. Um, and again, this is re- quite recent understanding. I mean, I have a very vivid memory of, I don't know when, how old I was, five, four, five. And I had a bedroom at the end of the corridor. And I always remember there was a bookcase there with glass panels. And one night there was this almighty smash. You know, the panels crashed. My brother crashed. Then you'd hear the thump, 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 thump of the the seizure. And then you'd hear the rushing of the parents. Um, Oh, dear, 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 dear. And the, 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 the sad part about it, I know everybody was doing their best. You know, everybody, my parents, my other brother, we were all in our own private hell. But I don't remember being reassured. Nobody came to give me a hug. You know what I mean? I was like left to get on with it. And it was only quite, again, quite recently that I was talking to a, a colleague uh, as I just had an experience in a car park when somebody was using a drill and the drill was so loud that I almost had, a, I just almost collapsed on the floor. You know, it was just, I couldn't cope with it. And, 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 but other people seemed to be okay. And it's like, <laughs> um, something not right here. And she said, she said to me, uh, I think she was a counselor actually. She said, I think that's signs of a PTS, not post-traumatic stress disorder, not the whole thing, but yeah. Mm. Somebody quite recently said to me, do you get startled when you hear sounds? And I said, I certainly do. It's like if it's an ambulance starts, the siren starts going off. Whoa, I feel that. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. So that's not right. That's a bit strong. (laughs) Sounds like, um, I mean, I totally get what you're saying about, about the, the trauma of, of witnessing seizures because because obviously my son has them as well I can't imagine what that must have been like as a child and then not to have had sort of any explanation or, or reassurance afterwards but um, what I've heard um, about the experience that, that you're describing is um, uh, it was described through um, a program about um, soldiers going through the uh, war in, in uh, Bosnia and they describe it as hypervigilance where they've come back and they've uh, not been able to sleep um, because they've, they've had these battlefield conditions where, you know, they've had to be alert all the time. And and I've also felt like that when I've had for eight years, my son's been having seizures um, and then they switched to mainly being at night. So I kind of get what you want, what you mean by um, certain things, triggering trauma and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right that, there is, there is something there. But now my awareness is so much better. So I think you're talking about self-care. You know, I am, okay, I'm, I'm much more aware now. Before, the tr- it was so instant, the trigger, and then I was in it. Mm-hmm. But now it's like, okay, it's okay. You know, I, which is yeah. wonderful. I'm able, okay, let's walk away now. Um, slowly, 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 it is improving as I'm getting more aware of, of myself and what I need to do to take the best care of myself. It sounds like you're, you're playing psychological catch up, you know, it, it, you know. It, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. That's, that's as I am. Because you've not had the space or opportunity to 
to process and explore your own mental health and your own needs and your own self-care uh, for years and years and years out of, out of necessity and, and family dynamics and, and so forth. And as a result, everything just been built, presumably building up, building up and, and not being dealt with. And like anything else, you know, things don't just evaporate. Now you're, you're slowly sort of chipping away at the, at this massive psychological. (laughs) uh, Can I I just say you're right. And actually, um, yeah, I was in the corporate world for many years and it was early, was it 2001? I, st- I started to want to, to be, to explore the self-development world. So I, I, I moved into coaching and leadership development and this kind of thing. So that was a godsend. Thank God I did that. So I was, and I actually found, thanks, I mean, this was the good thing. Thanks to my emotional intelligence, my sensitivity, because I learned from an early age to really tune into the environment. What was the atmosphere? How was my mom doing? How was my brother doing? I, I tuned into that really from an early age. I also tuned into my, if you like, intuition in the wisdom from an early age. Um, now, this were all really helpful um, qualities. That was all helpful, but it was as though I'd, I'd opened some some drawers, but still a number were firmly shut. Mm, and those now, mm. recently, I've been opening those, you know, it's just like, <laughs> oh God. That's really you interesting, know, you know, that that you're, you're t- you know, you, you are describing, you know, some gains from that. Oh, very that, much so. I yeah. mean, it's important I want to get that through. Very, very much so. Mm. Yeah. It made you, as you say, more you know in touch with others other emotions perhaps more maybe more em- empathetic to others and and more vigilant situations and and uh, more thoughtful perhaps maybe maybe people used to say even from an early age oh it's a bit deeper but you know there was something mm. there something a bit different there. yeah I guess you would have had to have become like that as a child and as a young person because you know that was your your, your coping mechanism, I suppose, in a way, you would have had to have done something psychologically to cope. And for you, it sounds like highly intelligent person, you know, got a lot of emotional intelligence. For you, you, you know, you, you probably analysed quite, quite a lot. Regardless, it sounds to me like you've, you've had a lot of trauma and you're processing it now and you're exploring it now, and that's great. But if you had had, as James said, the time and the opportunity earlier in your life to be supported and, and, uh, Perhaps your mm. mental health needs and your psychological needs put put more, you know, in the front light from time to time. You, you know, you perhaps would have benefited from that. I would have done, but even at university, I didn't know what anxiety was. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a word in our vocabulary back then. I suffered yeah. really bad anxiety when I was at university, you know, but it was stiff upper lip. You just go on with it back then. Yeah. It's a cultural, it's a cultural thing. I think <laughs> I think it's yeah. British culture is still like that, you know, to yeah. some extent, yeah. you know, um, stiff up a lip, you know, put up with it. Don't complain. Don't fuss. You know, that's. Well, it was that. Yeah. It, was, it really was that. And yeah. uh, fortunately I was very good at sport. So I could, uh, re- I really was driven the anger, the frustration, but I, it made me a very good sports person. <laughs> I was like, I was sometimes felt jet propelled. There was so much emotion driving me. So you yeah. found other channels to to process that anxiety. I did until the thirties. When I in my thirties, then I then uh, travelled and I I, I uh, moved to Paris and worked there. And I stopped doing all the exercise and my body started to seize up and my back went and it was very very interesting. So I was 
but the emotions just were piling up at a physical level. And then that was another matter. I've known you, Jenny, through um, the siblings group. And I have, to, I have to say, I think it probably seems to have benefited you quite a lot to talk about these things and to share experiences with other people that have had similar experiences. Yeah, I think, I think you've really embraced the spirit of, of what, the, what the group was founded for to talk about these things. And I think that's been good for you to be able to find people to talk about these things with. What do you think? Oh, God, yes, because one of the issues for me was I was invisible. And being invisible is just awful. It's so soul-destroying. What do you mean by that, Jenny? Do you mean that you didn't feel connected and you felt alone? Well, because, yeah, I mean, say let's go back to when I came back to London in 1998. Um, That's when I started to look out to the community for support. And um, I think it got worse when my mother's dementia really showed and doors were shut, literally. Friends didn't want to know. So it was um, not only was I trying to help Nigel, but he didn't fit. As I talked about that, he didn't fit into any boxes. But even the community wasn't able to support. So it was like tarred by a double brush, epilepsy and dementia. It's like my life was finished. It was pretty grim. I felt very isolated. I had a few wonderful friends at this time, thank God. But essentially, I felt very isolated and very stressed. Yeah. Do you think some some of that is down to just the social stigma that exists, not yes, perhaps the yes. um... social stigma? Yeah, social stigma, and then also the medical profession. But there wasn't that understanding that actually talking to a family member was really important because they live with me. You know, like I have quite a lot to offer about my brother, and the smart doctors now go straight through to me and say, right, tell us about your brother. Duh, 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 duh. It's a quick way of getting to the bottom of the, of the story. But back then, say 10, oh no, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was like, who? I had a conversation with one doctor. He's like, said, who are you? To, I mean, you're not trained as a doctor. What do you know? <laughs> wow. You know, and it's like, Someone says that to me, it's like red rag to a bull. <laughs> but there was that, so it was just, I was invisible. I was of no value. You know what I mean? It was, it was, yeah. And it was a horrible thing, a really horrible thing. So we're all here to shine. You know, we're all here to shine. And so it just was so, just so wrong. You know? I suppose I'm guessing here, but I suppose, you know, for, you know, siblings of autistic people, uh, who perhaps sometimes go do go under the radar, their needs and so forth as children, as you know, young people growing up. You know, it's yeah. it's even more important. You know that that society does listen to them and does give them space when they when siblings try and access that support because they've they're used to being you know uh, perhaps you know put second fiddle or third fiddle or not not sort of valued as much maybe. So it's yeah. you know it's a particularly sensitive issue, isn't it? Presumably, yeah, absolutely, very much so. So. To have a sibling support was was wonderful. So any opportunity, I'm very grateful for this uh, conversation tonight. Any opportunity to connect with people and discuss all this, I think is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I'd urge anybody just to to go for it, embrace it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really interested, Jenny, to know more about what, what kind of advice 
you would give to other people, you know, in your either in your type of situation that are listening right now who are adults themselves or uh, and they happen to be both a carer and a sibling, you know, and, uh, you know, perhaps struggling with their own mental health, not sure as to, you know, how Mm -hmm. how to uh, proceed. Equally, the other kind of people I think that would benefit from hearing about your advice would be parents where one of the child is a sibling for for their autistic brother or sister. You know, I I am a parent of of three boys, right? Uh, Two of whom are autistic and my middle son, who's um, not autistic. These some of these themes come up for him. You know, he's he. You can tell he he often feels like perhaps um, he his voice isn't prioritized. So it makes us as parents give him as much spotlight and as much attention as possible. So whenever he speaks, we're really really tuned in because we're we're aware of these kinds of these kinds of issues. I guess the very fact that you're aware is brilliant because I don't think when I was a child there was that awareness. Children back then were seen and not heard. So um, there wasn't that awareness of the importance of giving each of your children an equal voice. The very fact that there is that awareness now has got to be a real massive step forward. Yeah. Just as you you have spoken. But in in, in terms of others, I would say be prepared to um, challenge the accepted view. I know how important that's been for me. And if you're told one thing and it doesn't, as as well as this is a parent, you're told one thing about your child and that doesn't feel right, challenge. Keep questioning. Look for alternative perspectives. I know that the medical uh, profession doesn't like to be uh, questioned or challenged, but they are merely giving one viewpoint. There are many other viewpoints. And I used to have these conversations. I, I would say to them, thank you for your perspective. (laughs) <laughs> and then look at me it's like what do you mean but I have another one you know so I think that's really important if if you think that it's something isn't right then it's I think it's important to challenge and to keep the conversation going rather than just accept and suffer mm. it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like there I think that's great advice it sounds like you're saying you know leverage perhaps your strength because you you know you you would probably have been the kind of person where you would have to fight extra hard to make your voice heard right leverage that going forwards um to to you know put put your your needs and your siblings needs right there so you're all supported it's a a shame isn't it in a way that we have to be you know strong enough and intelligent enough and capable enough and resilient enough to, to to need to challenge you know and 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 without challenging things may not be as good as they could be you know and that's the society we live in generally speaking it seems like you know uh it's always about fighting and challenging and 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 pushing and that's a bit of a shame really isn't it you know um it shouldn't shouldn't feel like a fight or a challenge it should just feel like a collaborative you know approach to exploring together you know what what's what's the best way forward but you could say change is difficult i think generally isn't it i think humans most of us find change difficult to deal with so the, the medical profession is just the same they have a status quo a way of doing things yeah you know. yeah for sure for yeah. sure it sounds to me that you know you're doing a lot of you've been doing a lot of fighting a lot of challenging you know and, and it's really been important you know so yeah. how have you jenny how have you been 
coping how have you been looking after your own mental health so that you're able to continue to care for your your brother but also for you not to run out of steam and burn out and so forth well, quite quite well I mean my greatest objective if you like is to keep him calm mm-hmm. keep the anxiety low yes it's keep the uh, anxiety low which reduces the risk of seizures because he didn't have a seizure for five years uh, but he got he had a seizure in the hospital when he was there because he got COVID. But it's also I've seen him blossom. I've seen him able to express himself through poetry, through art. And that's been a wonderful thing. And now he does a lot of art. So it, that's been beautiful. And I give myself treatments. What, what do these treatments look like? I'm a bit, a bit um, naive when it comes to these sorts of things. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a therapy. But I learned this therapy from a, a Japanese uh, master. And there's, well, it, it, it's, it's done on a couch. So it's, it's physical work. A physical therapy. Physical therapy um, with an energetic perspective, an, an energy aspect to it. Um, yeah. So, Jenny, I think we've talked about this between us. In, you've mentioned it in the... Uh, yes, siblings. that's right. That's right. Um, and it sounds very much to me um, like um, it's involving his sensory processing. So it's actually benefiting him in a sensory way. And obviously, because you're so, you know, he knows you so so well and, and you've been a key figure in his life and he trusts you. That's bringing the anxiety down. But you've also managed to, to find a sensory way of um, benefiting his mental health, you know, he likes to be touched. We talked about yeah. that. It works yeah. Yeah. if you like yeah. touch. He finds yeah. that, I mean, touch for those who like to be touched can be very reassuring. I know some mm. people don't like to be touched. Um, it finds that very, very reassuring. And yes, it does. It brings down the the emotional overwhelm. Yeah. There, there are certain terms that um, I've heard sort of sensory experts um used for these kind of things um so it's about the kind of deep tissue massage or something like that uh, gives um sensory feedback there's a thing called proprioception which is a person's getting sensory regulation you know they're they're getting they're calming themselves down they're perhaps stopping themselves overloading stopping themselves having right. a meltdown Right, through, right. Uh, that's right. All these kind of yeah. coping mechanisms. So you've you've tapped into that, right? And that's sort of been been obviously been a benefit to him. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Right, because I mean, he just watching television, watching the news, and something starts upsetting him, and he you know, it's it's almost instant, and he yeah. just can't can't handle it. The yeah. the emotion is just too strong. The frustration, the anger the sense of injustice, and it's it's amazingly quick. And he can't regulate that himself. And he's not aware. He hasn't got that level of awareness or that that capacity to tell himself, oh, God, just calm down. This is not happening to you. You know, this is over there. Somehow I hasn't got that ability to do that. It sounds like he might be sort of hyper-empathic, you know, in that, you know, he hooks on to something terrible that's been reported in the news about tragedy or some some unfairness and hooks onto that and then really really feels it you know and that yes, perhaps then yes. yes processes and manifests 
emotionally and you know that then right you know presumably then raises anxiety and all sorts of difficult emotions that then are difficult yeah. to, to to process so it's I mean that's again another kind of a phenomenon for many autistic people is that their hype can be ex- very very empathic you know um to the point where it's it can be quite challenging to 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 manage those emotions does that does that sound like what's going on here I agree with you I think he feels it very intensely and just can't handle it and that's understandable <laughs> can I just also say that was another thing I, I I just I always want to say to people don't underestimate your levels of resilience and resourcefulness and I've yeah. seen that in the sibling group and I've just I've been in awe at the, that presumably that you know siblings are, are tough people you know they've they've uh coped with a lot you know and um you know they've built a lot of resilience built a lot of strategies you know and they're resilient resilient people so you're right you know let's not underestimate and underestimate that but at the same time i feel like we should never just rely on our own self-resilience you know we, we've got no, to no, no. yeah we've got to sort of um find ways to boost that what well, reaching out is vital reaching out to the community to friends who i think is very very important and i I've always said this, well, I said this about dementia, but it could be the same here, you know. I know we say it takes, it's a cliche, but it takes a village to look after. Well, I, I think it's the same here. It's amazing when you find your tribe and how that really just boosts your sense of well-being. And, uh... Well, as a, for me, it's supporting me as a sibling and in doing what I'm doing, but also supporting my brother. And the family, families need support. I mean, yes, as a sibling, I need support. Families generally need that support. Mm. And then the person with autism also needs that support. The, the other question I wanted to ask you, Jenny, uh, is, you know, what is your relationship like today with your brother? Is it that you are completely intertwined between sibling and carer? Or is it more sibling? Or is it more carer? Or is it 50-50? What, mm. what, what's, what's it look yeah, like today? That's a very good question. A very, very good question. Um yeah, I mean, it's it's been a journey, that is for sure. And I think I'm still on that journey. So I didn't really feel like his sister. And I did often feel very resentful and very angry, short of patience, you know. Uh, so relations weren't really that good, quite strained. Angry with who? Well, with my brother, particularly the years when... When my mother was quite ill, we had carers, but they tend, they looked after her. So it was really up to me to be caring for my brother at night. And I, I talked about this on another time. That nearly broke me. It was too much. I couldn't cope with that. But, you know, we we got one carer in the house. We couldn't have another one, you know. Um, so I really wasn't a sister then. And then this turning point um, when I realised I really wanted to be a sister. I wanted to be a loving sister. And I, I wanted to be a happy sister. To be miserable and resentful doesn't help anybody. So I needed to be living a fulfilled life myself. So the happier I could get, the happier I thought I relate, you know, uh, the relationship between my brother and I could be. And touch wood, happily that is happening. As my life is moving, moving forward, I think it's helping him. So I think I'm sort of in, we're in working progress at the moment. Does, does that answer? Yes, absolutely. Answer, it does. You know, and I'm learning. I'm also learning not to. This is part of this what we call mindset work. I realised that I was coming from fear, so I was always acting because I was uh, I, I was scared of what might happen if I didn't, and that was a horribly stressful 
place to come from. But now I'm a calmer and it's like, if I hear him shouting, it's like, oh, he's probably in a nightmare. And often he does shout when he's asleep and that's, that's fine. He, he's, he's having a dream, but I don't need to take any action. And I'm more able, okay, it's everything's fine. You don't need to rush down and to see to him. So I'm a lot more measured now. It's like, okay, no, that's okay. Do I need to? No, I don't need to. You know, and I'm very grateful for that. Very, very grateful for that. So it's given me a lot more space. So with that that space that you, you, you've developed and uh, when things are somewhat under control or more in control, it, perhaps it, it tilts, the relationship tilts more towards sibling uh, and when things... Yes, it does. It absolutely does. He's a lovely, lovely brother, yeah, who can support me. He's beginning. is a little bit more uh, space to support me, which is fabulous. And it makes him feel good because, bless him, he's still protective. There was a time a few years back when I had I was having an argument with a plumber or something, and he... St- this is when he, he could, he, he, he stood in between us to protect me because he thought the plumber was going to give punch me in the face. So he still, look, you know, he's older brother and he still looks after me. Bless him. That must have been yeah. so special to you. That must have been really <laughs> special for you. Yeah. That's right, you see. Um, so that's what we, you know, more loving environment for all, all of us three siblings, basically. What, what, what do you think his hopes are? for the future between the three of you? Yeah, good question. Good question. Yeah, he worries a lot about his, he says, oh, I'm no good, I'm finished. He can, his mental health can really, really uh, decline. I think he would like to be able to walk without the walker. Now, I don't know if that's possible or not. I don't know. It's obviously a difficult conversation to have, isn't it? You know, but that might be something you, you, presumably when you feel ready to you know to sort of front and center explore with him and your brother you know what how should we you know sometimes we we dance around things but we don't just talk directly about it again I think it's a British thing to some extent we're not perhaps as direct as as uh, we might be I I myself actually have um, I'm sort of I was raised in by Greek parents uh, Greek Cypriot parents in Britain so I have experienced both both cultures and that's a big difference with the greek culture you know with the greeks they just tell you straight you know what what it is they are thinking and what it is they're feeling and what needs to happen they're very kind of front and center whereas the british it's it, i've always felt like you know you have to be managed and careful and sensitive which is great you know so but yeah that that can sometimes be difficult to have those tough conversations when you're when you're like that well, it is. I agree. I know. I mean, I think I've already seen there's a little bit of a flashpoint when I'm I'm sort of growing and um, which obviously with the pandemic hardly left the house, for, you know, for however long. Um, but now I'm wanting I'm, you know, getting out and about more. Um, I haven't had a holiday in many years. Maybe just go away for a few days. Now, that would be a huge big deal. Do you live to just is it just the two of you that live together? yes yeah yes so that would be that's a big deal and it's something I would just like to be able to yeah uh, be away for a few days hopefully Nigel would be would be all right you know that's a big deal but I I I, it's important I think that I for me I create that and he'll need a lot of reassurance too 
even if I go out one night, he's waiting for me like a parent. He's not sleeping. He wants, he's waiting up for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's nice, isn't it? That's what siblings do. That, that's a sibling relational thing, isn't it? There's, but there, yes, there is a nice, but there's also um, an unhealthy element to it. He's, there's a bit not wanting to let me go. Right, 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 right. Right, the, the, he's, too, he's frightened yeah. of letting me go. He's called me mother sometimes, you see. So I'm a bit of a mother. I mean, I'm not. I'm his younger, you know, younger sister, but a little bit of mother figure. Um, I can't fill that gap. I lost both parents, so... Mm, that must yeah, be difficult so for you. Watch you know. the space. See how it goes. <laughs> six yeah. months, ask me that question. We'll, we'll have another episode in uh, six <laughs> months and see how things are, are going. It sounds like... Um... I think they call that attachment, don't they? Um, it's no wonder because you've been his, his carer for so long, you know. Um, you know, I, I think most carers would would kind of worry about, you know, I'm a parent, what what would ha- what happens when I get too old to look after my son and that kind of thing. Yeah. And he's got that attachment thing going, you yeah. know. Um, yeah. So I, I think a lot of people do experience that them that are carers yeah yeah it's been really fantastic and uh you know really benefited from hearing about your insight and your experiences yeah i just want to thank you for being so open about it all really it must have been quite a difficult conversation for you but thank you so much no it's it's been surprisingly not difficult if i may say it's just been a wonderful opportunity would you be happy for people to contact you perhaps by email if they have any questions or want to reach out and connect with you having listened to you speak about your experiences i would that would be a lovely thing yes yes great thank you that's very generous of you so i'll put your we'll put your email address in the uh, podcast description and so if anyone listening to this wants to reach out to jenny and follow up with her you know, perhaps you relate to this, perhaps you, there's something that we touched upon that you wanted to understand a little bit more or something else, just reach out to Jenny and drop her an email. We'll put the email in the, as I said, in the description. Uh, James, anything from your side? Just um, to say, just meeting meeting you, Jenny, through through the siblings group and sort of being a, a witness to your journey and being a part mm-hmm. of it a little bit. Um, it's really brought home how important as you said, having a space to talk about things with people that understand and don't judge and this kind of thing. Um, so perhaps if anyone out there is listening and they're in the London area or surrounding counties, we could put the um, uh, the charity email if anyone wants to join the siblings group to be part of the conversation. Perhaps that would be really a useful thing to do. Um, and, and just to say uh, thanks so much, Jenny. It's been a, a really fascinating conversation and, um, you know, I've learned a lot from knowing you and um, I'm, I'm sure we'll go on through the through the siblings group. Thank you. All right, then. So thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you so much, Jenny. Wish you all the very best, Jenny, and uh, speak to you very soon and stay safe and good luck and take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.